Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Well, we're in uh, message four in Route 66. We've crossed a couple of state lines, and uh, we've made a couple of rest stops, but not many. And by the time we get through tonight, we will be through the Song of Solomon, which means in three messages, we've gone through 22 books. I need a rest stop. (laughs) You probably need a rest stop from writing, but uh, hopefully that's why you've got all the notes and uh, you'll be able to follow along. I want us to talk in this message about songs in the key of life. Songs in the key of life. I love music. the staff can tell you I love music. Mark can tell you I love music. I, I checked my uh, iTunes yesterday, and I have now 7,468 songs on iTunes. Now, some of those came off of CDs that I converted so that I could load them onto my iPod so that I can have something to do when Delta's not ready when I am. And uh, so uh, I have some backup things there. But, but I love all kind of music. I, I love every flavor of music just about that you can imagine. Uh, our girls, when we were growing up, used to hate it when I would play Larry Gatlin's Live at 8 p.m. Uh, and I'd start singing, I'm alive and well and living in the land of dreams. And they're diving for the floorboard. I mean, they're just, please, Lord, get us out of this car. Uh, but, but I love oldies, and I love Christian music. I love all kinds of Christian music. Uh, I love the classical stuff. I, I, I love the contemporary stuff. I love choruses. I love hymns. Uh, I love Broadway music. I love oldies. Um, I, I just love it all. And, and when you study the Scriptures, you realize uh, that there's a songbook inside of the Scriptures, the book of Psalms. We do not have the melody. As John Bassanio said, maybe God saved the words and not the melody so that through generations we could take the words of the Psalms and turn them into songs that fit the culture and the times in which we live, but we still have the words. We don't know the tunes, but we still have the words of the Psalms. In these books, you're going to see prose and poetry. You're going to see the the books that deal with the heart and with the emotions of mankind. And and there's a lot of information there at the first, but I I just want to give you four principles here to start about these poetic books, Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. First of all, they give us life and heart experiences. They give us life and heart experiences. These are stories of real people and real emotions. Secondly, they are a reflection of the issues we all face. If you've lived very long at all, you have found yourself at some point in the book of Psalms. You have found yourself at some point feeling like Job, that everything is falling around you, falling apart. You've tried like Solomon did in Ecclesiastes to find meaning outside of Christ and found it to be vanity. So these deal with issues we all face. Job wrestled with the issue, why do godly people suffer? It's still an issue we wrestle with today. Thirdly, these books have a range of emotions and honesty before God. If you're afraid to be honest with God in your prayer life, then just read these books 
because these people were honest with God. They didn't go and in times of trials and stress and adversity and, and say, Lord Almighty, oh great and wonderful one. They said, Lord, what are you doing? I, I think sometimes we try to impress God with our praying, and God already knows what we're really coming to him to talk to him about. So just cut to the chase and get to the point. And, and tell God what's on your heart. By the way, he's big. He can take it. He can take your frustration. He can take your questions. He can take your anger and your hurt. That's why he wants you to read these books to find out what they say to you about life. Number four, they reflect the nature and make up a man. They deal with man, body, soul, and spirit. They reflect the nature and make up of man. So let's look at Job, a story of sovereignty and suffering. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. Most scholars believe that he was a contemporary of Abraham. So he lived at the time of Abraham during the time of the book of Genesis. And the scripture says about him, he was blameless and upright and fearing God. Now that wasn't his mother talking, that was God talking. That was God's evaluation of him. And I'm like Ron Dunn. <laughs> Ron used to say, you know, if God ever says to the devil, you know, there's old Ron Dunn, he's blameless, upright, and fearing God. Ron said, tell him to tell somebody else he's blameless, upright, and fearing God. I don't want to go through what Job went through. But God said of Job as he looked at him, he's blameless, he's upright, he's fearing God. This book begins in heaven. In fact, the book of Job is really, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, there's a wager going on between God and the devil. Will a man serve God for nothing? There's a wager going on. God is betting his own reputation on Job's response to adversity. God is betting his own reputation. Satan comes and says, you know, what, what about him? Let me, let me attack him. And so all these attacks come. He loses his children. He loses all his farm animals. He loses his, his family. And, and then Satan comes back and says, well, yeah, but, you know, any man will still praise you as long as it doesn't affect his own life. And God said, you can have everything, but you can't take his life. And so Job had boils all over his body from head to foot, and yet he did not curse God. It's an interesting book. It's a fascinating book. It's hard to get our hands around how God can allow these things. But Job is in the Bible to tell us that God allows adversity and suffering sometimes so that the body of Christ can show to the world that we have a view of life bigger than the moments and the instances and the circumstances of life that we have a broader picture of how life is going to turn out and a broader picture of how things will end. So uh, I just, when I look at Job, here, I'm just going to sidetrack here for half a second. When I look at Job, I think about what's going on in America today. We don't want to hear about adversity. We want to hear about prosperity, and we want to hear about blessings, and we want to be name it, claim it. We want the joy boys telling us everything we want to hear, the way we want to hear it. And, and I'm, I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again briefly. If the gospel that is being preached will not work under a communist dictatorship or in a mud hut or in the jungles of South America, it's not the gospel. Amen. 
It's got to work in every culture and every place and at every time. And the gospel is about Jesus changing men on the inside. It's not about putting a better roof over your head Amen. and driving a better car. And, and if the gospel, let me, let me tell you, listen, believers in China could care less in the underground church could care less about 99.9% .9 of what they hear on religious television if they heard it. They would laugh at it because some of them won't be alive a year from now. Believers in Iran and Iraq will not be alive a year from now because they are marked for death for coming to Christ. You go to them and say, you know what? If you believe in Jesus, God's going to give you all this wealth. They don't want wealth. They just want to know they're going to live another day. Amen. If the gospel doesn't work in any culture at any time with any people, it's not the gospel. It's a delusion and a deception of the gospel which only sells with people who are materialistic. That's the only people who sell with. That's why Job is here. So here you find three things in the book of Job. First of all, the shallow opinion of Satan. Job chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. The shallow opinion of Satan. Satan really believes that the only reason we serve God is because we get something out of it. I loved a song Andre Crouch sang years ago. He said, if heaven was never promised to me, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. It's a great perspective, by the way. If heaven was never promised to me, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Imagine your life if you didn't have the Lord in it. The difference that he's made in you. Satan has a shallow view of man. Secondly, the shallow view of many believers, chapter 4 and verse 7. Whoever perished being innocent, that was the question of his three so-called friends. And if you have friends like that, you probably ought to change your friends. Friends are not people that are only with you in the good times. Friends are people, when everybody else, as Jay Strack will tell you this, when everybody else is walking in out of the room, they walk in. That's who your friends are. Everybody else is walking out, they walk in. They ask the question of Job, whoever perished for being innocent? They seem to agree with Satan's evaluation, which is the shallow view of most believers. So let me, let me just add a little thing here. They had all their theories about why Job was suffering. Can, can I tell you just a piece of pastoral advice? When people are suffering, they don't need you to show up at their house and start being an armchair theologian. And they don't need you to show up at their house and theorize on why they're suffering. What they need is you to show up and sit down and say, how can I pray for you? Amen. That's what they need. They don't need your theories. They don't need your theology. Because in the moment of suffering, the only thing you're trying to figure out is, does God know and does God care? And who else is going to stand with me in this crisis? That's what you're trying to figure out. And so don't, don't try to be eloquent. I, I see people at funerals and I see people in hospitals and they go and they try to wax eloquent. And they try. I'm just trying to say the right thing and usually you don't. Just don't say anything except I'm here. I love you. I'm praying for you. How can I pray? How can I help? And the greatest thing you might can do would be to go clean their house while they're in the hospital. That may be the most spiritual thing you could do for them. Just a thought. But it's a shallow view of many believers that they've got to answer all the unanswerable questions that happen in life. Thirdly, the sovereignty of God is revealed. 
the sovereignty of God. That's chapters 38 through 42. God starts asking Job a lot of questions. So where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So where were you? How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? Tell me when all this happened. If you're so smart, tell me how all this came into place if you know so much. And God spoke to him until Job said in chapter 42 and verse 6, I repent in ashes and dust. There's a lot of things in the book of Job that are like Romans chapter 7, where Paul said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But chapter 42 of Job is a lot like Romans 8. We overwhelmingly conquer. Remember what Job, he lost seven sons and daughters. He got them back. He got new kids. He had some in heaven, had some on earth. He got, every, he got everything doubled. He got more donkeys, more, more goats, more cows, everything doubled. God blessed the latter days of Job more than he did his former days. God being sovereign and God being in control. God always has the last word in life. Then there are the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These are songs of worship. Uh, if Job is filled with songs of the groanings of the spirit, then these are songs of the soul Psalms deals with life, the emotions of life experiences. When you read the Psalms, you see the emotions, the, the gut-wrenching emotions of life experiences. Proverbs deals with the mind. So you're going to see here the emotions, the will, and the mind. Proverbs deals with the mind and a biblical worldview, how to think the way God wants you to think so you can be wise. And then Ecclesiastes deals with the will, what we choose to do with the resources in the life that God has given us. So Psalms deals with the life and with the emotions, Proverbs with the mind, Ecclesiastes with the will. So let's look at Psalms. The word Psalms means a book of praises. It's a devotional manual. It's a hymn book of praise and of worship. It's the longest book in the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm. 119 is the longest psalm. 118 in verse 8 is the middle verse of the book. There are 283 times that New Testament quotations are used of the Old Testament, and 116 of those are from the psalms. David wrote 73 of the 150 psalms. That's why they're called the psalms of David, because he wrote so many of them. Now, I want you to look at psalms, and we're going to break down something here. Because as I was studying this, I started seeing how God has just interwoven the tapestry of Scripture in, in such a way that it paints an incredible picture. There are five books in the Psalms. Five within one. Okay, so that's the first thing you need to remember. One book, it's got five books inside of it. So there are five books in the Psalms. And the five books break down according to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they are broken down and deal with the same themes that are dealt with in the first five books of the Scripture. So let, let's look at it. Every one of these sections ends with amen and amen, except the last one, the fifth one, which ends with praise the Lord. And so this has a five-fold pattern. First of all, Genesis deals with man's need. That's Psalms 1 through 41. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Genesis deals with man's needs. The psalmist talks about the needs of man primarily. These are primarily broad categories, but they still fit. 
Then there's Exodus. Exodus deals with God's redeeming love in times when we're struggling, when we're desperate. And that's Psalm 42 through 72. Genesis Psalms 1 through 41. Exodus Psalms 42 through 72. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Leviticus is a book of worship. The primary worship psalms are Psalms 73 through 89. The primary songs dealing with worship are 73 through 89. Here you find the most references to the majesty and the reverence and holiness of God in this section of the psalms. Then in Numbers is a book of wandering. That's Psalms 90 through 106. Psalms 90 through 106, the ups and downs of life. That's what relates to numbers. We find the reality of, of the psalmist walking in victory one day and walking in defeat the next. And he, he's wondering about God, then he's praising God. It's, it's the roller coaster. It's the up and down. And so as numbers talks about this wandering and this lack of sense of direction, there's this section of the psalms that deals with the same thing. And then Deuteronomy is a book of helplessness and the need for dependent obedience. And that's Psalms 107 through 150. Five books inside of one book tied to the first five books. Now, is God smart or what? <laughs> I mean, he's put it in there so that we can say, oh, this is related to this, which is related to this, which is related to this, and these all these pieces of this puzzle, when you put them together, you've got one story. The ebbs and flows of life, God's plan of redemption for man. You've got it all right there. Let's go to Proverbs Proverbs is, uh, the English word proverb is from two Latin words, pro, meaning instead of, and verb, or words, proverb, proverbs. And a proverb is a sentence that defines something that you could take many words to say. The Hebrew word translated proverb means a comparison, a comparison. The key words are my son and wisdom and instruction the key verses, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and chapter 9 and verse 10. Now, I want to give you a comparison of Psalms and Proverbs, all right? So walk with me. This is Psalms and Proverbs. It's coming up, and you'll see this. Psalms deals with fellowship with God. Proverbs deals with fellowship with others. Our relationships, who we spend time with, the decisions that we make in our relationships with others, having wisdom in those relationships. Secondly, Psalms is vertical. Proverbs is horizontal. Psalms deals with how I relate to God. Proverbs deals with how I relate to everybody else. And so you read Psalms. If I get the vertical, if I get my relationship with God right, then I'm going to have wisdom in how to live with everybody else and how to have relationships that are God-honoring. Psalms is devotional. Proverbs is practical. It's just practical stuff. That's why you ought to read a chapter in Proverbs uh, every day. You read through Proverbs once a month and be amazing the things that will come to your mind when you're put in questionable situations. Psalms is about Sunday. Proverbs is about Monday through Saturday. All right, I've worshiped the Lord on Sunday. Now what I do? Proverbs. <laughs> this is how you act. This is how you live. Psalms is about worship. Proverbs is about wisdom. Proverbs is about wisdom. 
Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and understanding. So it's a contrast between the wise and the foolish. Those who are wise in the ways that God thinks and those who are foolish because they follow the way that the world thinks. Proverbs deals with life issues. Ten times he says, hear my son. It's an instruction book for how you teach your children. It's an instruction book for youth that are going through the crisis and the changes of life. It's an instruction book for a college student trying to figure out what they're going to do when they get to college away from mom and dad. It's an instruction book for parents facing an empty nest and what do you do to impact and influence your grandchildren. This book tells us how to tell those that we love, this is what you'll do if you're smart. And this is what you'll do if you follow follow the foolish wisdom of this world. And so I want you to look at it. There's three things I want you to see here. First of all, there are two voices in this book, the voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. Two voices, the voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. And one of the questions when you're talking to your peers or when you're talking to your children or uh, when you're talking to somebody else, ask them which voice they're listening to. Are you listening to a wise voice? Are you listening to wise counsel? Or are you listening to a foolish voice that's going to take you down a road that's going to hurt you? There are two ways, the way of God, which leads to life, and the way of sin, which leads to judgment. The way of God leads to life, the way of sin to judgment. Two voices, two ways, two types of men, the wise man and the foolish man. Now, here's what I love about Proverbs. You can see Christ in every chapter. Because remember, Jesus said, I am the truth, okay? Jesus Christ was the embodiment of truth. So when you read Proverbs, every time you see the word wisdom, think Christ. The Christ-like man does this. Every time you see wisdom, you think Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom of God, the truth of God. Christ is on every page in the book of Proverbs. These are not just pithy little statements that sound cute and you can quote and say, you know what, I can quote a proverb and then we quote one and and we move on. But it's Christ giving us the wisdom to know how to live and what to do. And so God's wisdom, Christ, affects the whole body. Let's look at the four things that he affects. First of all, the heart, chapter 4 and verse 23. If you're a wise person, it affects your heart. He's not talking about your physical heart. He's talking about your spiritual heart. It affects your mouth, chapter 4 and verse 24. What you say, how you say it, who you talk to, what you say when you talk to them. 
It affects your eyes, chapter 4 and verse 25. Chapter 4 and verse 25, and it affects your feet where you go. Chapter 4 and verse 26. Proverbs is about life and how we live life. So God's wisdom affects our lives, our day-to-day going and coming. Now we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the title means the preacher. And this book is a deliberate investigation by a man who would have made Donald Trump look like a pauper as to every possible philosophy and worldview apart from God. He is investigating it all. I mean, he tries everything and every level that the world has to offer, and he's got unlimited resources to do it with. And he tries all of these and comes to some conclusions. If Christ is the beginning of all the Proverbs, he is the end of Ecclesiastes. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. If you see Christ as the beginning of wisdom, then the wise person will look at all the worldviews of life. You don't have to taste everything to see if it's right or not. You can just look at it and study it and say, that's not wise. And we need to remember our creator because he's the one that gives us the wisdom in how to live and not make bad choices. Key words are vanity, 37 times, the preacher, seven times, under the sun, 29 times, and wisdom, 28 times. So I want you to, to watch this. There's life under the sun, S-U-N, and there's life under the sun, S-O-N. Life under the two suns. There, there is a life with no meaning, and there's a life with meaning. Nothing matters. And then there's nothing satisfies, and then there's satisfaction. The first part of Ecclesiastes, you find him trying everything. And it has no meaning, it doesn't satisfy, and he comes back to what his father David had told him about loving his God. And so Solomon sought to answer two questions. Question number one, can you have a satisfying life without God? That's a question everybody's asking. Can I, can I live a life of fulfillment without God? Can I live a satisfied life without God? Can I be happy without God? And the second question is, can anything in this life satisfy the deepest longings of the heart? Can anything, can any substance, can any relationship, can any attainment, can any title satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. And, and Solomon's already answered these questions for us, so we don't have to repeat the same mistakes. He says, no, they can't, and they won't. Only God can answer the deepest longings of our hearts. And so you see all the things in your notes that he tried, wisdom, pleasure, architecture, gardening, cattle breeding, collecting art, Stoics, philosophy, religion, money, and reputation. And at the end, he says, it's all vanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now the Song of Solomon. Some of you have just been waiting. Anxious anticipation. Probably the least understood and most neglected book in the Bible. Uh, you want to talk about a book that commentators go real quick on and real short on, it's the Song of Solomon. The key word in the Song of Solomon is love. The key verse is chapter 6 and verse 3. 
If Ecclesiastes is a study of philosophies of life, then Song of Solomon is a study of passion and love in multiple areas of our lives. It's a picture of intimacy. So there are four ways to interpret the Song of Solomon. Some people say there's only one way. I, I'm, I'm just going to go that all four will work. Okay, first of all, you can interpret it literally. It portrays married love and the sacredness of marriage. It is a story of a man who loves his wife and his wife loves him. It is a picture of married love. When you see the words, my darling, it's usually the husband speaking. When you see the words, my beloved, it's usually the wife speaking. Now, I know most of you have not gone this week and said, my beloved, thee and thee only do thou, I, we, you. Uh, you don't do that, but you, you've got a relationship going on between a man and a woman. You know, one of our problems in the church is when I was growing up, you know, we, we wanted all our girls to be Lottie Moon until the night they got married. Then we wanted them to be Marilyn Monroe. Is that the way it was when you, you know, I mean, you know, church didn't talk about S-E-X. Well, God made it. And that's how you got here. <laughs> the stork did not bring you. God made marriage to be a picture of his love for his church. And there's nothing that pictures the love of God more than the love that is contained within a marriage relationship. So there's a literal way to interpret it. There's the dispensational way. It portrays the love of God for Israel. By the way, the Jews would read the Song of Solomon during Passover as an allegory for Israel as the bride of God. So during the seven days of Passover, the Jews would read this book because to them it was an allegory. It was a story. It was a picture of Israel being the bride of God. We can read it doctrinally because it portrays the love of Christ for the church, how much Christ loves the church. And then we can read it spiritually. It portrays the communion between Christ and the believer, the intimacy that God wants between Christ and those who love him. So there are four ways to read this book and all of them apply. You may read it one way, just looking at it from that angle, you may read it another way and say, boy, I see how that's got Christ and his church in it. And you may read it again and say, I see how that applies to me. It's all in there in this very, very neglected book. Oh, by the way, the Jews likened Proverbs to the outer court of the temple, Ecclesiastes to the holy place, and Song of Solomon to the Holy of Holies. When they looked at these three books, the Jewish people would look at them and say, the Proverbs are the outer court, where the altar of burnt offering and the labor for cleansing were in the outer court, so that you've got the outer court, Ecclesiastes, the holy place, Song of Solomon, the Holy of Holies. So they read Proverbs, and then they come to Ecclesiastes, and, <clears throat> and the wise person 
is unashamed to say they love God. How about that? The wise person that has learned from worshiping God and walking with God in Proverbs and seeing the foolishness of this world comes into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God where his sin has been cleansed and washed away and he finds an intimacy with God that he could not have if he had dirty hands and a dirty heart or unchristlike motives and ethics. And so they, they valued this book. There's no area of life that God is not interested in. These five books tell us these things and when we're through. First of all, God knows our suffering. That's the book of Job. I don't think these are on the outline. I added them. God knows our suffering. That's the book of Job. Are you suffering right now? Are you hurting? You feel like God's abandoned you? God knows right where you are. That's why we have the book of Job. If you're suffering, go read Job. You'll find out that God's in control and God knows what's going on. Secondly, God knows our battles. That's Psalms. David was going through battles and adversity. He's being run out of his city and run off of his throne and, and chased and pursued. And yet here was David in the battles of life, turning his battles in times of blessings where he could praise God even in the midst of the battles. Thirdly, God knows we need wisdom. That's Proverbs. God knows we need wisdom. That's Proverbs. You see, somebody wiser than you and I has already told us how we're supposed to act. <laughs> I don't have to figure it out. It's that when you get born, you don't have to say, okay, now you've got to learn from scratch. It's already there. We just got to learn what somebody else already said. We need wisdom. God knows we'll be tempted to settle for less than the best, and that's Ecclesiastes. God knows that when we're young and young people and young adults, that we will chase the dollar, that we will chase the American dream, that we will chase what this world has to offer and wake up one day and find out that our lives are empty, our homes are broken, our, our dreams are shattered, we're scarred, we're beaten up. Life has taken a cruel turn and, and taken us down a, a dirty road and we'll wake up and realize, you know, I need to go back to the God of my fathers. That's why you see so many people that leave the church after they get out of high school that when they start having children, they come back to the church because, well, guess what hits them? I need help. I've been doing too good on my own. I need help. The wise person would never leave and go try those alternative paths. They would stay on the path with God. And then God knows we need a wholesome and holy view of sexuality. Boy, the world has certainly given us its view of sexuality, and it's not pretty. God knows we need a wholesome and holy view of sexuality, and that's the Song of Solomon. God wants us to understand what he created it to be, not what the Internet and other things are trying to make it. So Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, 
you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.